Uh, when our kids were much younger, we did our best to instill in them the necessity of wearing shoes in public, um, which does conflict with a cane family trait to be barefoot at all times as much as possible even. But we would inevitably arrive at the grocery store or at a friend's house or at Skytop Orchard or the park and only to discover that our children who were actually wearing shoes around the moments that we left were going full Flintstone on us by the time we got there. No shoes at all to be found. So Ashley in her preparedness got the great idea to buy a few extra pairs of flip-flops, cheap flip-flops from Target to leave in our car. These always ended up back in our house and had to be returned to the car, which was annoying, but she'd wisely found a contingency plan for the next inevitable shoeless outing. She kept us prepared, and she usually does. So, uh, needless to say, I probably don't need to tell you the stakes of preparedness are infinitely higher in the first, this first of two kingdom of heaven principles in Matthew 25 in our reading today. Most scholars throughout the centuries, they have agreed that the New Testament presents the Christian life as one lived at the intersection of vigilance and patience. Put another way, we live in anticipation without all the information. That is actually how following Jesus feels. Vigilance and patience. We believe that our contemporary world is set between two advents, two arrivals, the first and the second arrivals of Jesus, one that has happened when we await. So every new year for us is still A.D., even if others are calling it CE, for us it's still Anno Domini. This is still the year of our Lord. It's the next year in waiting and watching. The time between the resurrection of Jesus and his promised return. We, it's our legacy to live our lives, our connected lives, straddling this time between his resurrection and his promised return. However far they prove to be in history, far apart they end up being. In capable shoes, for a long journey, our hands are firmly on the plow and our eyes are on the horizon. This is the normal Christian life. Throughout Christian history, there has always been, though, a substitute for this reality because this kind of endurance and vigilance and patience, they aren't easy. So there are substitutes for this kind of calling. In our day, Christianity can get reduced to ceremonialism, which, by the way, in our Amos reading, that's where Israel had found themselves to sentimental spiritualism, and even a very reduced taking the ethics of the kingdom and just reducing Christianity to a social justice moralism that can be withering in its own right. And I think these stand-ins for this patient, vigilant faith, they like to clomp around the house in the grown-up boots of historic Christianity. Never mind the fact that there have been two millennia of saints and martyrs beginning with hundreds of eyewitnesses of Christ's death and resurrection, those who saw Jesus alive and heard his promise to return in glory. This is the legacy of Christianity, waiting and watching. And truth is, either we believe Christ has died, has risen, and will come again, um, as he said, or we are just dabbling, so to speak, again with our religious impulse which all humans have. If it's not a personalized Christianity, you know, we'll cobble something together to satisfy this desire we have for transcendence, for something lasting and something bigger, be it technology, 
and all of its promises or politics or sex or attention or celebrity. The list goes on. The desire for something bigger. The desire for something, uh, for something to hope for. Something transcendent. So it's clear in at least two of Jesus' parables that he was calling his between the Advent's followers to a life of predictable unpredictability. We aren't going to know. And we know that we aren't going to know. The way forward in the kingdom will mean a lot of unknowing. It will mean trust. It will mean patience as preparation for unpredictability. But a kind of foolishness imagines that there can be another way. It's worth noting that many of us probably grew up thinking of Christ's return and righteous judgment as something to be feared. We were taught, and this was, was me, we were taught that Jesus' warnings meant that we should worry, be, even constantly worry. That's where our vigilance goes, is to worry that at any moment we might be left holding the bag, not measuring up, not persistent enough. But for us, Really, Christ's return is a hopeful thing. It's a hopeful thing. It's good news, even though it's challenging. And that might be a way of even talking about what is characteristically true of the light and the truth that Christianity holds out. Yes, it's good news, even though it's challenging. Amid all this national and global tension that we live in, all the alarmism, the misinformation, the failure for civilization to be civilized, or even civil, Christ's words, these Advent-ready words, they remind us that some things just they can't be threatened. They are sure and they are true, even if we don't feel it. That come what may, the world will be made right. Justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Despite all our best human efforts, and we've tried it in a lot of different ways, to finally get it right and bring the long night of crooked powers and principalities to an end, the maker of heaven and earth has promised that he will come once and for all to reveal, that is judge, to rescue, and to reward. The naked will be clothed. The hungry will be fed. The stranger will be given a family. Lovers of the light will be rewarded. Lovers of darkness will be exposed cast out. And that's why we remind ourselves of Christ's return in the Nicene Creed every week. It is good news. And this is the point of the whole Advent season that we're moving toward. So our appointed Sunday readings, they're already preparing us for this season, reminding us again to be people waiting and watching like Israel. This season, even hearing th these parables, is preparing us to start getting prepared to be waiting and watching like Israel was for the promised Messiah. So let's just dive into this parable a bit and let Jesus speak to us. So I'm going to talk about it kind of in three, uh, three ways, three things. I want to talk about the context, like where's this coming from? What, what, what's going on around the story? We'll talk about this very briefly, this wedding motif, this imagery that Jesus uses, and also what I want to call the real problem behind the problem of these bridesmaids, the lack of oil. 
So first let me talk about what's going on around the story, the context. Jesus has left the temple in Jerusalem and he's returned to the Mount of Olives with his disciples who come asking when the temple will be destroyed as he said it was going to. And so, uh, you know, obviously and understandably, they're a little bit wound up about this. When is it going to happen? How will they know when it's going to happen? What will be the sign, they say? And so for background, the Mount of Olives is identified by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, as the mount on which the Lord will stand to save his people from the hordes that have amassed against them. And Jesus is already entering into this prophecy and beginning to fulfill it. What anyone has yet to realize by this point, when he's standing there, is that Jesus himself is the sign they're looking for. But he's also the object to which the sign is pointing. He is the salvation that he proclaims. But Jesus hasn't made this that explicit yet. He doesn't respond directly to their question as much as they might like for him to. Not yet. Instead, what does he do? He warns them not to be duped by others who claim to be that saving Messiah. He says that wars and rumors of wars will be standard, that famine and earthquakes and nations battling will be part and parcel. But the end is not yet, he says very clearly. In other words, this is what the world is going to be like and will look like until uh, he returns. It's what it will be like before he returns. It's going to be like this for a while, he is saying. He's saying your task is not to fixate on the end of the age, but to live vigilant, patient, dependent lives within it. This is the calling within the age. He tells them that people will surely flake out and fall away. And again, all of this is happening in this particular teaching. People will flake out, fall away. They'll spring up like seeds on shallow ground and wither when the sun gets hot. Followers will hate and betray one another. It will be tumultuous. And yes, leaders will use fear and coercion and misinformation and violence to guide history on their own terms. But then Jesus, he artfully teaches them about the kingdom through these several parables. I call parables stories that stick because they provoke, right? They, as I often say, they offend the mind to reveal the heart. They're all about the delay and what to do with it and what to do during it. The coming age will arrive in their generation, and this is an important distinction. This age is arriving in Jesus, but... This unpredictable age that it has inaugurated, it will persist. This is what they can expect. They won't know when or how. So if you fast forward just a few centuries from when Jesus is sharing all of this to the waning days of the Roman Empire, there was a minor Roman official who's worth listening to. Uh, he was a Christian named Paulinus of Pella. And he offers a compelling example as his world is coming apart. As his world is reaching what feels like an apocalypse or an end. And so as Rome was falling or had fallen uh, by the late 5th century to the Visigoths, Paulinus, he lost his possessions, which were many. His land, which was expansive. He lost his position, which was high. And he found himself homeless at one point. He was a refugee in a town that was under siege at the time of this writing. And so he describes this, what he's going through, as a season of endurance. He describes it as even a gift. He says this, he says, God has chastened me 
with continual misfortunes and taught me that I ought neither to love too earnestly my present prosperity, which I knew I might lose, nor to be greatly dismayed by adversities wherein I had found that his mercies could sustain me. So it was living in the, really in the world as, it, as Jesus promised that it would be and it coming home for Paulinus that he began to, to move into a greater maturity in his faith and to realize what these things really meant. He located himself in this life of waiting and watching, making sense of what's going on, making meaning of it. Paulinus' contemporary, St. Augustine, would agree with him. In the City of God, which he wrote, he refuses to interpret the fall of Rome as a disaster because he knows that Rome isn't sacred, or at least not the kind of disaster that people thought it was. The future of the church isn't contingent upon empires. He and his contemporaries were learning. Instead, every city of man, according to Augustine, is a character in the larger narrative. It's a season, it's an era It is an end in itself within this larger narrative of God's care for the world and his calling for the church to live in the world. So there's some background. Second, this motif, this imagery, and I just want to talk about this really briefly, the wedding motif. In Scripture, the wedding or marriage imagery, you know it's consistent and it's important. In Isaiah 54, God declares that he desires to marry Israel so that the nation will not be barren. From Jeremiah 31, Hosea 2, we know Israel to be this unfaithful bride, yet the Lord will not abandon her. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, he takes up this identity for the church. And then in the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, this Lamb to his bride. This is the pinnacle of the redemption story, the divine bridegroom coming for those who believe and have endured. It's an important and enduring motif. And so in the parable of the five wise virgins or bridesmaids, we're called to be what Matthew calls high hetoimoi, literally the readies, the ready ones, ready for the bridegroom, ready for the wedding, except in the story, some are not. So then thirdly, let's consider the real problem with those who are not these foolish bridesmaids. Think about this. The only reason that you would neglect to prepare for a delay is that you aren't concerned there might even be one. Even if you've been told, and applying it to his disciples, Jesus has clearly taught and is teaching them that there will be a delay. And wisdom is about living as such, preparing for such. It's the normal Christian life we find out. Because when you're unsure of the time you're in, this is is important, when you are unsure of the time you're in, what do you do? You do what you've been taught to do. You have one job. What Jesus is saying with this imagery is bring the lamps and keep them burning. We're waiting and we're watching. The philosopher Paul Tillich uh, defined religion as the object of one's ultimate concern. And I think that's a pretty good definition of religion. Your religion isn't You know, what you do on the weekend, it isn't maybe even what you think it is. It's actually what you are most ultimately concerned about. It reveals itself even without you having to explain it. And in this parable, the unready bridesmaids, they've found something else to be more concerned with, apparently, than the arrival of the bridegroom. Their devotion lies elsewhere. So, they condition their waiting 
we might say, on their own terms, their perspectives, their priorities, their distractions. We don't need extra oil. And this is the real problem beneath their unpreparedness. We have one of the central tensions in this parable is the fact that the unready bridesmaids, they expect the readies to account for their unreadiness, to loan them some oil. But what happens if the readies give up half their oil to the unreadies? By the time the welcome celebration occurs, everyone will be out and no one will be ready. There will be no light remaining after all. Here's the point. The point is this. You can't let the foolish unreadies call the shots. And I can think of about a thousand ways this plays out in the church in America or at least throughout our history. Can't let the foolish unreadies call the shots. For the faithful, there's still a wedding at stake. There's still a bridegroom coming. Jesus himself promised it and we believe his promises are yes and so be it. Amen. But this is the constant, this is the perennial temptation for the church is to be led in some sense by those who aren't living in vigilance and patience. We all get distracted. And friends, we all know that the world is dark. And so we have, we remember that our baptismal vows, what are they? And we'll hear them again today, even as we say them together or as they are said on behalf of these children who are to be raised in the knowledge and the admonition of the Lord. Our baptismal vows, they are a repudiation of darkness and evil, and they are an embrace of light meant to shine through our lives. There's a kind of oil for burning that we are embracing It's what the church receives when the Holy Spirit fills us with new life. Paul leaves no doubt in Romans 12. He says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. Serve the Lord. And then he continues, and what he does is I think he lays out what this looks like for us. How do we live in this time between the ages? How do we live in this time waiting and watching? What does it look like? Well, it looks like a lot of the things we know that Christianity is meant to look like that are a reflection of the character and the likeness of God revealed in Jesus. He says this, beginning in verse 12, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He goes on. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What is he doing? He's explaining what it looks like to live with the light burning in the world and a world of darkness as we wait and we watch. He said, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. So there's a forward-lookingness, so to speak. He says, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What does he tell us to do in the meantime? He says, in the con- on the contrary, or to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will, re- you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how light works in the midst of darkness. 
This is what vigilant patience looks like. This is what it does. So Paul is saying that the future of God's justice, what does it do? Right now, it informs our values and our hopes and, and the way we see virtually everything. Money and class and sex and politics and conflict and community and power. The king and his kingdom are our ultimate concern. We know, we believe, we hold out the truth that the arc of history is indeed pointing toward justice, moving toward justice. We don't know exactly what reward or retribution will look like or how lasting the final judgment will be. Those are the details that we don't, that's a lot of unknowing wrapped up in all of that. We don't get a whole lot of clarity there. The church has long pondered these questions. St. Augustine, St. Gregory, they debated this, and you know what? They disagreed about what it looks like, and that's fine. It's not new for us to not know. Let me say that again. It's not new for us to not know, and it's not new for us to be called to wait and to watch and to experience the world as so many before us have experienced waiting for Jesus. We know this, the call to perseverance and accountability. They run like this wide band through the redemption story. Perseverance and yes, accountability to this truth. Jesus has taught us to be the readies, to foster the light, to fan the flame in our own homes and communities while we're holding it out to the world, not perfectly but persistently as we say with enough light for a celebration, for people to see there is this celebration to which they are invited to. This Thanksgiving meal that we receive, that we enjoy, that we celebrate every Sunday, between these candles, between these lights of Christ's humanity and divinity, between His first coming and the second that we anticipate, This is a central communal act of living, listen, between memory and hope. Our lives are right there. They're right there. It points us backward to this last Passover in Jesus' body and blood and forward to the great wedding feast when he's present to us. Every week, it helps us. And Lord knows we need help to be reminded and encouraged to be the readies that Jesus calls us to be. We can't do it in our own strength. And so he puts in our hands and in our hearts the ultimate concern for which we were made. Let's be honest. We forget through the week. Come Tuesday. I mean, I'll be honest. I forget what I preached on Tuesday, by Tuesday. <laughs> but we return for Jesus to preach to us. Again, with his body and blood in our hands, he reminds us that we've inherited a shared calling throughout all time and space. This is oil, as it were, that's passed down to us, given to us as we wait and we watch with equal parts vigilance and patience. We're not special in the grand scheme of things, but we are loved. And so together with all the saints, As we were reminded last week, we wait, we watch, we trust, we don't get it right, we lose some some sort of height on our flame, we certainly do, but together we're waiting, we're watching, and so we pray. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We don't know the day or the hour, but we are watching and waiting as you've called us to do. Help us to remain prepared.
ready, undistracted. Keep our oil undiluted. And let your word, the true lamp for our feet, be undimmed by the darkness of the world. We pray all these things in your name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.